0: Welcome to Sector Head Spotlight. I'm your host, Robert McGrordy. We're about to review the background and process of a Hedgeye Sector Head, as well as discuss some specific key themes pertinent to today's market conditions. If you'd like to learn more about their research, go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. Now, let's dive into this episode. Welcome to Sector Head Spotlight, this week, I have the great company of our industrial sector head jay van skyver with us today thank you sir for joining i uh, appreciate it and for those at home if you haven't watched any other sector head spotlights they're all in the playlist on youtube i uh, encourage you to go watch them out last week we had uh, our head of research and sales uh, dale jones on uh, great great background of both daryl and everything that's going on here at hedgeye but more importantly today it's all about industrials. How are you? And materials. And materials and, and materials. Industrials and materials. Uh, how you doing, Jay?
1: Good. We're, yeah, we're busy uh, heading into earnings season. Uh, we get a lot of uh, conferences this time of year. You get analyst days like FedEx this week, so there's a lot to go through.
0: Awesome. Yeah, so again, for those that may not have uh, watched any prior episodes, the, the general process here is uh, we're gonna go through a little bit of Jay's background get into his actual process and how he uh, formulates kind of uh you know narrows down all the ideas out there and the the, the great companies that he could cover uh and then we're going to go uh touch base on uh, some key themes for 2023. so with that Jay uh I know you've been here for quite some time and that's one of the beauties of Hedgeye is that uh the 10-year uh, I think Bloom told me is uh seven uh seven years is the average tenure here at Hedgeye uh, and I know you're longer than that, but uh, what's, when did you officially join Hedra? I was born at an
1: early age. I, <laughs> uh, I, I joined in 2012, in twenty twelve, uh, and uh, I guess I had been on the buy side a long time. And uh, a f- friend of mine, a close friend from, uh, from college, told me to go and talk to Keith. I went and talked to Keith, and he pitched me the idea of remaking the sell side uh, and that we could do a better job and it sounded like an enormous market that is usually very badly served if you look at what what adam jonas puts out in tesla or whatever it's just like oh my god this passes for research Um, and the conflicts are deep Uh, the conflicts remain unresolved very often Uh, and the goal was to put out a product that uh, would be uh, more sophisticated actual buy cider would cover the space for a dozen years you know, coming in to uh, provide more sophisticated, more transparent, totally unconflicted work, yeah, uh, and that has been very successful. I think it'd be hard to look at the growth of the firm and not conclude that.
0: Agreed. And when you were on the buy side, were you always covering industrials and materials, or was that a pivot that you made here?
1: No, I I was I started out um, as a chemist. Okay. Uh, I'm a, I'm a lab worker uh, by by training, academic, uh, but I could program because uh, that's sort of like a standard skill. So I I got a, a job. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to work. Uh, I didn't, as it turns out, turns out like working in a lab. Uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: So I left college uh, and got a job, uh, and my job was at uh, Brown Brothers Harriman, which is a very wonderful place. Uh, uh, I guess it would be called a white shoe private bank downtown mm-hmm. with a long history, uh, and I was put into buy side equity research uh, into a, a quantitative role. Uh, the whole interview process was, uh, I think, consisted of me explaining parts of quantum mechanics to the head of equities and, and being interested in it, and thinking that I was smart enough to do uh, that, which turned out to be a very easy job. So I wrote a program to do that job for me, and then I didn't have anything to do. So I got apprenticed to the uh, industrials analyst there, who had uh, been an industrials analyst for decades mm-hmm. uh, and had a really unique perspective. Like he could talk about, you know, the nineteen seventies like they were yesterday. So when you look at a lot of our material, uh, it has a longer history to it, a longer set of definitions of a cycle, or uh, I think a bit more perspective uh, on how things actually work and play out. Uh, and that in part reflects some of that initial grounding and then the fact that I've just been doing this for more than two decades now and have seen a lot. Um, but yeah, that's how, and then he retired, he was uh, an older uh, guy and I took his coverage uh, and that's how I ended up being an industrials analyst on the buy side at a, uh, and it was also the dot-com crisis. So nobody wanted to spend any money hiring somebody expensive. And I was cheap and I didn't seem so bad. Uh, so they, uh, they gave me the, the job.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. Hi, Robert McGrody here, director of subscriber development at Hedgeye. Hope you're enjoying our podcast. Start generating alpha with our suite of sector pro investing research products. Dive deep into retail, industrials, technology, and everything in between. With exclusive access to the sharpest analysts and actionable ideas on Wall Street, go to Hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. Enjoy the rest of this episode. So you've gone through the the big the the, the bricks boom, I guess, right of uh, the materials wave there in the in the two thousands, and uh, then kind of uh, you know because you've gone through multiple cycles, I guess, is what I'm. Oh, trying, yeah, is what I'm trying to get at.
1: <laughs> no, it's uh, you know it's it's funny. Um, people say consensus is always wrong. That's not that's not right. Consensus is always consensus is generally fairly right, and then you you know, people say things that seem incredibly naive. Like if everybody in you know China bought a washing machine it would require this much steel, and you're like, wait, it actually would. Oh my God, people are going to need more iron ore. Uh, you know, you see something like that playing out today in lithium, where people are like, well, if everyone bought an electric car, you know they can't do that there's not enough lithium to I make mean, very small batteries right you could do that yeah <laughs> everyone could go four miles and they'd have to recharge but uh yeah you, know, you, run, you run out of lithium pretty quickly so there are things like that uh that you can see in cycles that are you mentioned bricks like that was sort of the big you know beginning of uh you know china enters the wto and that's sort of the defining all the infrastructure needed to basically supply the fixed asset investment bubble yep. uh there was an enormous theme at least on the machinery side Uh, it also I think took away from automation you saw a lot more manufacturing go to uh, low labor cost regions you know every industrial presentation for a long time was just like yeah we're going to make that in China then our margins are going to go up right Uh, and you see some of the unwind of that now Um, I think I think it is helpful to have been through sort of that that BRICS emergence and uh, what is a reordering of the global uh, system now to 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 know that that actually happened to have lived it to watch it uh, to talk to the people at the time uh, so I think that longer perspective is, is useful
0: Yep. and so if we go kind of pivot a little bit to your process um, how has that evolved over time from from kind of by side to where we are today and I'm I'm sure it's even evolved since you've been in a hedge since 2012 but um, yeah just kind of curious
1: yeah so I mean I should our, our process is to define the cycle okay so what we're usually trying to do is understand uh, what drives cyclicality or a secular trend in an industry or what will feel? I mean, finally, everything is cyclical, right? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess. But, you know, there are true growth industries. We don't have that many of them. Mm-hmm. Like automation might be a true growth industry. Uh, but for the most part, we have cyclical. So the, uh, the industry we usually do uh, in describing process is shipbuilding. It's actually our launch short with Samsung Heavy when, uh, when I introduced process at Hedgeye in 2012. Because uh, it's a beautiful cycle, right? World War II results in uh, a lot of uh, ship, shipping tonnage. It should be a yeah, chart uh, for that. General, if you uh, don't want
0: pulling up slide one, that'd be great. Uh,
1: you, know, you see a lot of tonnage added to the global fleet, fleet after World War II, but ships last for 30 years because they're made out of steel and they're in salt water and they rust out and uh, they gradually get replaced. Uh, we call it fleet demographics. So I was, I uh, think Neil um, Howe is an interesting person to work with because it's <laughs> people demographics and something. But what if they were ships i mean the idea of like it's a newborn baby rail car right uh and it will age go through its life cycle buy a house or whatever um but you yeah, know 30 years later you get a big replacement cycle because all the ships that came out of the war they wear out and that was the 70s uh and then you know you have another uh 30-year cycle of those get replaced uh peaks out very clearly around 2011, 2012, when we put a uh, Samsung heavy on best ideas as a short and it promptly went up aggravating the sales team. Uh, but later I think it's down something like 80% since then. So, you know, these are, these are longer term calls. Like this isn't, you know, uh, a signaling market microstructure type of approach. This is something that is tangible, really long-term in the case of shipbuilding. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can know that in, uh, whatever will be in, the uh, 2045 that you should buy, uh, probably Chinese shipbuilders, assuming that we're all still here and there's public equity in Chinese shipbuilders to buy, uh, because there'll be another replacement cycle. All of those, uh, you know, the cohort from, call it 2002 to 2012, those ships will wear out, they'll be replaced, unless we're going to stop shipping things, which is very improbable. Um, and uh, that will be a great long, it'll go up 10x or something like that uh, in the you know, eight years. And that's a perfectly acceptable return. Mm-hmm. And so that's the first part of process. Um, you know, the second part of process is to look at industry structure. Mm-hmm. And something that I just have come away with thinking over time is there are good businesses. And there are businesses that are just really hard and have a high failure rate, like opening restaurants or truckload carriers, right? Yep. It's another one where you just have, you know, a very hard time historically making high returns on capital. And then there are things like railroads, which are basically lately regulated monopolies at the moment, right? They have an easy time making more money yep. when they don't have accidents that get press coverage. Um, <laughs> you know, so I, th- I think there are places to, you know, generally, in my experience, it's a lot easier to bet on a good business than a bad business. That doesn't mean that you can't get outlier returns in 90s airlines from peak to trough. It's just, in general, you're going to have an easier time being along good businesses and short bad ones. Your, your hit rate is going to be higher. It's a You know, it's like, uh, you know, trying to play blackjack with, uh, you know, hitting on an 18. It's Mm -hmm. like, uh, it's just, it might work. You might get your three, but you probably won't. (laughs) Uh, So that's the second part. And then I am, I'm not, I would consider myself like a a value guy, Mm -hmm. not in like a, I buy cheap stocks and that's all you need to do way. But I do think that there is this idea of alpha in the market that's theoretical and uh a useful way you know a useful heuristic a rule of thumb to think about things and you know if, if you have a company that um and i'm not like you know a, a value person who thinks that like it's everywhere and always it has to be a value approach right because mm-hmm. i lived through the financial crisis i saw things trading for you know less than liquidation less than uh you know net nets were, were all around and you would buy them and they would promptly go down on you Uh, so that was a, you know, humbling moment. Oh my God, it's a net net. This is fantastic, right? Where current assets minus current liabilities exceeds the enterprise value. Um, and there are ways in which, you know, even value can not play out. Right. It can be very tricky. Uh, what you think is cheap is cheap for a reason is very often the case. Uh, but I do think that there are, are moments when, if you're looking at, uh, you know, uh, valuation anomalies uh, between, for example, A and B shares, right, uh, two classes of stock. Uh, in the case of VW, I think it's like an amazing example right now where yeah. you have Porsche is trading for, which owns 75% of, or BW owns 75% of Porsche. Porsche is trading for more than that 75% stake is worth, and it's only 11% of EW revenues, right? It's a small part of the total mix, a company that's net cash. Uh, that's, you know, the kind of thing where, like, if you like the auto cycle, mm-hmm. that's an interesting and important thing to observe rather than looking at the valuation and realizing that oh whatever you think about the cycle is probably already priced in or whatever like you're not that insightful right that's i think a useful indication as to what the market is expecting and the parts of my process that have really adapted um i mean we always had a macro context right? you couldn't have gone through i was at a long short fund through the financial crisis and like you know, we launched in, uh, early 08 and it was amazing, right? Like there's so like ball was cheap. There's so many amazing options. And like, why can't everyone see this, this stuff going on? It was very slow to play out. So when people talk about, oh, you know, the market's done with whatever the cycle is like, I don't know. It took a really long time in 08 to play out. Um, you know, so I think you have to, I was always macro aware, but making it like an explicit part of the process is a relatively, you know, new development. Uh, because I do think that uh, not even just the company performance, but just security selection varies so much based on macro regime, right? That everyone's going to plow into cyclicals last year. Why? Because they have long backlogs, right? Uh, and now they're all going to plow out of them. Why? Because those backlogs are going to go away. I know that from macro, right? I can get a decent macro forecast. Uh, that's, I think, an important perspective advantage in terms of how you position uh according to sort of the risk factors for uh the sector uh and then the other thing we've done and i guess we always looked to things like use equipment prices or like higher frequency data sets uh you know before joining hedgeye but we have a data collection team here we have great access to we have some more money to run these <laughs> surveys than i used to uh so like we run um for example a tesla survey uh, which we think we have in the slides, you know, so we can see how the brand is, is, is faring over time, uh, you know, and whether or not people want to buy electric cars. These are important uh, indicators that we can, that these aren't company reported data sets. These are things we can do on the data collection side, looking at, I mean, app data is the most common or credit card data, things like that, or people use, Hedgeye has been, when we don't even share all of them, remarkably clever uh at coming up with alternative data sources that because you get in the middle of a quarter right and your position is you know uh down four percent relative and you're like i don't know what am i doing here like is this just a waste of time or whatever and if you have anything that gives you a better than guessing uh, uh sense of what's going on in terms of the company fundamentals which are like they see in earnings that kind of stuff it can probably improve your odds right i, fa- I found it very helpful uh, in terms of decision-making at moments where there isn't a lot of other clarity or uncertainty, the market's telling you you're wrong, maybe you are wrong, and this data is bad, and you should dump it. Uh, or maybe the data is really robust, and you should hang in there, right? Like, uh, you know, climb the mountain or whatever you're supposed to do, right? Uh, my, my daughter said, climb the mountain, do. I thought that was funny. Uh, but, you yeah, know, that's the kind of... Um, uh, process improvement, those two things. We call it the three things, cycle, industry structure evaluation, plus the two two additional things. Sure. You know, try and make sure you align with macro, especially on the factor front, and uh, and be aware of alternative data sets and build alternative data sets that give you a unique insight into what's actually playing out.
0: Yeah, so if we go back to that slide on Tesla, slide five there, Jenron, can you just walk our listeners through, through how you – review this and, and kind of come, like, what kind of conclusion do you, I mean, I think it's pretty clear, but, but just expanding on sort of kind of what this data is, and then, and sort of the read-through. Uh,
1: well, you know, there there are some uh, real truths in that data set, right? That's an incredible amount of money that has gone out into producing uh, that.
0: Those two bar charts?
1: Yeah, I, I'm not going to, you know, but we're talking about, like, a lot of money that goes into the surveys. Yeah. Uh, and it's pretty high frequency. We do it pretty frequently. But what's nice is we have a consistent data set. So we have a consistent data set about whether or not people want to buy electric vehicles. We mm-hmm. have surveys on different brands. People are really only interested in Tesla. And one of the things that's interesting is if you looked in twenty eighteen-19 at the survey data, uh, you know, it's a really good brand. Mm-hmm. It it has generally fared very, very well uh, you know, through that period, and it's not surprising that they were able to sell a lot of cars. Um And then as you get into more recent data, it's not that surprising, uh, as you get into 2022, that they have inventory problems, right, that they're not selling as many cars, because the brand is more politicized than it used to be, there are, I think the most important dynamic is more alternative vehicles from Mercedes, Porsche, Audi, BMW, Mm -hmm. right, you can now go and buy a Rivian or a Lucid or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, there are a lot more options, whereas in 2019, there were very few plausible electric cars that you could buy that were like you buy an, uh, bold and IPAs. And then I struggle, <laughs> like, I can't remember the other ones. Um, Oh, leaf. Uh, I can actually come up with them if you could be, it's not really very important. Um, so, you know, I think that that tells a story that confirms it provides a bit of quantification of, um, what you would expect to see in terms of competitive and industry dynamics, as well as some of, um, you know, some of the other issues around the brand.
0: Yeah, makes sense. And and yeah, I mean, as you pointed out, it it goes from kind of a a top quartile type brand awareness and to, you know, bottom third, basically. Um, Yeah.
1: and, and, And just to be clear, like 38 is still a very
0: very it's robust still a very number good
1: brand. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's something if we're bearish on Tesla then we need to hear, you know, that's something that we need to look at and be like, okay, even though this guy has done all this stuff and there's these great competing vehicles and there's these other factors, like the subsidy went away for a while, like yep. still did pretty well. Like it's still, you know, yep. uh, it's still, and that that's an important, uh, it, all the data should not point in, uh, in one direction. If that were at zero, and you know, a hundred percent negative responses, and inventory—they weren't selling. They wouldn't be selling any vehicles, and uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation because the stock wouldn't be there. wouldn't be topical, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so. There's always going to be good things and bad things, confirming evidence, disconfirming evidence. The most important thing is to focus a lot on the disconfirming evidence.
0: Yeah, and so if we just pivot a little bit to kind of, kind of the outlook for 2023, uh, you have a great slide here, slide four, General, about uh, how industrials follow the Fed higher and yes. lower. Uh, so I think that's a you know very topical, obviously with uh, the Fed and and what they're doing with rates, and certainly you know our view here at Hedgeye, which would be you know higher for longer in terms of the the the, the uh, you know. The Front end of the curve, so, so the two year is a good proxy for that. Um, but uh, yeah, just you know, if you don't mind running through, uh, you know, what what you're seeing there inside of the sure. industrials, yeah.
1: No, I mean, so what's interesting is through 2022, where you saw a lot of what we call the profitless growth names, the mm-hmm. Plug Powers, the Lucids, or whatever, yeah, underperform. You saw the John Deere's and Caterpillars. We had Caterpillars the best idea long, you know, heading into 2022, right? We had Packard. We have a lot of these. Um, uh, machinery names, are the true cyclicals. Uh, the sector has longs last year. I mean they show their high quality companies or whatever yep. Dow components, whatever people say about them. But that wasn't why. it's these are names that work as the Fed tightens because why is the Fed tightening? Why? Because there's too much inflation, there's too much demand, capacity utilization is too high. Deer is earning too much money, right That's basically what that means. and they're going to continue to tighten until that stops, right So they're uh, so typically, uh, you know when the Fed is tightening, Cyclicals outperform, uh, and then you hear like a lot of investors, you know, uh, even on in the institutional level. Well, when the Fed pivots, you know, these names are really going to be great to be long. You're like, no, no. When the Fed pivots, that means that there's disinflation. Factories aren't full. There are too many employees, and these are typically names that will then follow the Fed in terms of cutting back down. Right. Mm-hmm. So, believe it or not, cyclicals don't love Fed-induced recessions. Shocking. Um, and that is, you know, I think an important macro framework. So when we talk we've recent only recently we did a machinery deck literally two to uh, ten days ago mm-hmm. where we you know moved Europe up to our top short uh, um we've added all the steel codes as, uh, as best idea of shorts in part because we are getting to the it can stay high and these can start to underperform and it can take a long time for them to actually reprice down like the you know uh, i'm not sure we're going through OE again i mean that's a uh, you know it's always uh, a mistake I think to, to create market analogies every market is its own beast but there are parts that certainly rhyme as I was sitting through March uh, watching Banks fail right like that was very uh, uh, I don't know whether you remember like yeah. the, I'm sure you do uh, Bear Stearns I had interviewed a Bear Stearns not that but like, like three months further I was like oh so yes, I'm glad I passed on that job <laughs> uh, you know it's true though uh, my wife is angry she's so you know more money or whatever. Right. And uh, yeah, Yeah. I think it would have been fine. I think I would have gotten to go to JP Morgan, Uh, but
0: uh, I would suspect
1: I would, I would like to think so. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. But you know, maybe not. Who knows? Who
0: knows? (laughs) Hi, Robert McGordy here, director of subscriber development at Hedgeye. Join our entire research analyst team live before the market opens for deep dive investing analysis. Our favorite stock ideas and our risk manager in chief, Keith McCullough's macro overlay. Our team of 40-plus equity analysts discuss key market developments, trends, and our high-conviction, long and short investing ideas. You will not get this granular level of insight anywhere else. A video replay, audio version, and analyst summary notes from The Call are available shortly after each live show to ensure you don't miss anything. Go to hedgeeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. And tune in live to The Call weekdays at 745 a.m. Eastern. Enjoy the rest of this episode. Uh, no, but it, it's a good segue in terms of uh, – and you were on uh, a Spaces with me on Twitter uh, a week and a half ago, a week ago a Tuesday. seems like a Sorry, two weeks ago. ago. It was two weeks ago. Apologies. It's before your – it was two weeks ago. But it doesn't matter. Point is, is that you were talking about kind of like – well, one, we can get into the steels. But the other component too in terms of – to finish off this thought on industrials and the cycle um, – because you just made this comment about backlogs and and how you know the backlog had been strong and they're and they're working through that, uh, but for those that maybe didn't uh, you know uh, tune into our spaces, uh, do you mind just walking them through how that backlog cycle cycles? Uh, yes. In, in terms of what we are seeing today and and how it's pivoted from twenty twenty two to kind of like Q one here in in twenty twenty
1: three. No, it's it's actually been a really unusual cycle uh, in manufacturing because it's very rare that you can't go out and buy as many cars as you want off a Ford lot as at any time, right? Uh, and supply chain difficulties really did um, undersupply a lot of markets. Uh, and orders for industrial goods really did accumulate. Uh, and that is, um, the, that is an unusual dynamic, right? And in general, uh, cyclicals trade on orders, not revenues, not earnings. Like, I don't care what any of these guys are going to report in terms of EPS. I'm going to look at the backlog, and I'm going to take, you know, it's going to be revenues plus or minus the change in backlog, mm-hmm. right? That's going to be your implied orders. Uh, and if that's above sales, then sales are increasing. And if orders are below sales, then sales are decreasing. And that's your book to bill. And uh, that's, what, that's what counts at the end of the day for most cyclicals. Order and the outlook for orders is, is what matters. So, uh, but you end up occasionally where the line is so long, that people don't focus as much on orders. They focus, oh, well, I mean, they're sold out for 2024. I mean, finally, if you're sold out to 2030, like, yeah, I guess your orders don't matter, right? Like, it doesn't matter, Uh, but uh, you know, what what happens, so you can be sort of bullish into a slowing order environment in 2020, uh, and then know that at some point, you're gonna start to eat into backlog, order backlogs in a way that matters. Mm -hmm. And that's really what's pivoted here uh, and and will matter, I think, going forward through, backlogs peaked out on ism in october or i guess they turned negative which technically means they peaked out in october of 2020 mm-hmm. uh so you should start to see negative order trends you started to see uh, a negative book to bill like a caterpillar a book to bill below one uh in the fourth quarter but those will turn much more averse in the first quarter numbers and that's one of the reasons to be cautious on cyclicals through uh through this quarter and basically
0: now Yeah. <laughs> and, and I haven't gone through uh, financials on the industrial side in quite a while, but the book-to-build number, is that something that they report or is that something that you calculate?
1: No, not everybody discloses order okay. backlog, Okay, uh, but order, you, they, usually they give you a backlog of order and, and you can just calculate it very quickly. Cool.
0: Um, and that's, uh, that's important. Cool. Yeah, so uh, for those at home, book to bill critical piece. Uh, if you didn't, if you didn't catch that little, uh, it's called active listening, and uh, that's a really p- uh, important piece here. So if you're kind of tracking this at home, book to bill uh, is a great, great, uh, you know, metric to, to, to track. And if
1: if there's one other like thing that I'd like actively listening to people, the Caterpillar reported its highest margin ever. Right. Uh, not quite a century old company in the fourth quarter of this year Mm -hmm. uh of 2022 so last year fourth quarter uh cyclicals are reporting all-time highs in margins are not that's not bullish that's usually you want to buy cyclicals when they're ideally at an infinite pe because they're losing money or an undefined pe uh and you want to sell them when they're at low PEs and you know reporting peak margins so uh, i think the risk like the upcycle is very powerful because the supply chain difficulties Another dynamic, uh, which we could talk about is uh, the narrowing of competitive geography, which contributes to those high margins, which I think is um, slide five or six uh, that we had uh, up there. I don't know if that's useful. Um, There, that's a good one. Uh, So, you know, what's interesting about these markets uh, for, for industrial products is very often they're global, right? So cement is like the classic local market, like nobody's importing cement from like you know Nigeria to the U.S. because it's just it would cost a fortune. Mm-hmm. So typically, you know, we think about cement as having a fifty-mile geographic competitive range, right? Like, and okay. if somebody's two hundred miles away, you're not competing with them in cement because it's just too heavy to too cheap to ship around. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there may be exceptions that we can put it on boats and things, but for the most part, if it's not on a boat, it's pretty narrow. Uh, when you have shipping rates that blow out like they did during the fine uh, during. The uh, the COVID period where you had snarling at ports and intermodal terminals and things like that, the price of shipping blows out and the competitive geography for all industries narrowed enormously. So instead of steel, you know, competing as a global industry, suddenly it was competing as a domestic industry, and then everyone starts talking about reshoring because of course people are ordering domestically. You couldn't possibly 12, pay twelve hundred dollars to you know for a container to ship a steel toaster to the US, like it would just be too expensive. Uh, And you see that for steel very clearly in in a number you saw it in 08 when Baltic dry went nuts, Uh, Mm -hmm. you saw steel profits and steel stocks increase quite a bit. The dynamics are a little different uh, in this particular cycle, because uh, it was really a supply chain difficulty, in addition to shipping. Uh, And there is a reshoring story that gets going, part of which is very true, right? Part of reshoring started back in 14, 15, when one, it just became more expensive to produce in what were formerly low labor cost areas. And two, uh, uh, because I think uh, automation, a lot of technologies made it more attractive to produce in and tax policy and other policies made it more attractive to produce uh, in Western Europe and the US. Uh, So the other part of it is just, you know, it became too expensive to import things. So people bought things locally. That has since reversed. So a lot of those names I think are the most vulnerable, the ones that were uh, like steel, subject to reduced international competition because shipping rates were too high and are now facing a renewed surge of, you know, cheaper overseas products.
0: Yep. Yeah. No, it's a, uh, uh, yeah. I think from a materials and industrial s- uh, standpoint, I know uh, late cycle pricing is what they have been reporting. And we certainly believe that that's going to be pivoting here and and one reason why uh, both materials XLB and industrials are uh, on the short list for for Keith and the signal in terms of uh, on the short side. However, if you listen to the call this morning. You, my friend, were a lucky guy because you had three of his top seven signal, uh, you know, top longs on the from a signal strength standpoint. So, uh, don't just think hedge eye here is is uh, you know always bearish, right? It's we've got great longs and shorts. Um, and if you didn't get a chance to watch that call or sorry, listen to the call this morning, uh, this would be uh, April. What are we? April sixth. Um, I would really encourage you to do so because it was a great. Uh, you you and Keith had a fantastic conversation this morning on uh, both. Uh, something on both your both longs and then also on some of the shorts, too.
1: Yeah, one of the problems with covering industrials is we talk about these machinery names. and That's what people think about when they think about industrials. But in fact, the real role of industrials in the S&P is to accommodate whatever doesn't fit into another sector. So <laughs> if it doesn't make sense in you know, healthcare, it's probably an industrial. Right? <laughs> yeah. So you end up with uh, everything from the transports, airlines, railroads, the uh, manufacturing companies, business services, uniform services right? Like any of these, uh, for a while we had food service, which I think Aramark has now been moved to Howard's coverage. Mm. Uh, but it is a, uh, amazingly diverse company, uh, sector, right? So mm. waste management is an industrial, right? Like, I guess it makes sense, but if you think about the dynamics of what makes a truckload carrier work, right? It's a very, it's very different from what makes, um, uh, a Caterpillar work or what makes uh, an airline work mm. or, uh, a defense contractor which we also have right these are all very different uh industries they all also tend to have finance subsidiaries so uh every industrials person is basically a generalist right there are some things i don't know about but mostly we have to get into a lot of very niche industries uh to understand them
0: yeah awesome well with that I, you know just want to really thank you for your time today it was a great conversation uh this yeah, we could be doing this for hours. To be perfectly frank with you, Jay, but uh, thank you for tuning
2: in. Uh, we will see you uh, soon. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than forty research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye is not responsible for errors and accuracies or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye's subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the Terms of Service at HedgeAid.com slash Terms of Service.